We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Sermons with Rabbi David Seth Kirchner, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Perhaps you remember the same instructions that I remember from when I was young that were given on television by Dick Van Dyke. He told us all that, God forbid, any of our clothing would ever catch on fire. We're supposed to do three things. What are they? That's right. We're supposed to stop, we're supposed to drop, and we're supposed to roll. And that was the instruction for all of us so that no matter what happened, no matter where we were, if God forbid we ever found out that we or a loved one were on fire, literal fire, our posture should be one where we immediately stop where we are, we drop to the floor, and we roll in an effort to put out that fire. And that's the way we had been trained for years upon years upon years to deal with the catastrophe of, God forbid, any of our personal clothing or our body catching on fire. But what happens if we're walking around and it looks like there's flames nearby and we feel on our body a burning sensation and it's a strong burn? Do we stop, drop, and roll? even if it's not really fire? And is it possible that by stopping, by dropping, and by rolling, we might actually cause more harm to what we feel is a burning sensation than we would if we did nothing or did something else instead? I tell this story as a metaphor because in Judaism, we have been for our entire history as part of our DNA, we have been taught so that we have a patella reflex, like when we hit our, the doctors hit our knee and it kicks up, what to do when we face anti-Semitism. We've been taught it our entire lives. It's two things. We take a defensive posture on the balls of our feet, speaking figuratively, prepared to give defense on what to do when someone comes at us with any form of anti-Semitism. But the reason we're on the balls of our feet is so that we can pivot 180 degrees quickly should the anti-Semitism become so strong that we have to run away. And ladies and gentlemen, that has been our posture since the history of the Jewish people existed. In 1492, it was the king and the queen that kicked us out of Spain. In the turn of the 20th century, it was pogroms in the Ukraine and Russia and all of these places of Far Eastern Europe that Jews were attacked and had to flee. They tried to fight and then they couldn't and they ran. In 1935, when the Nuremberg Laws were introduced, in 1938, a Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass in Germany, World War II and so on, we faced this attack of hatred for the Jews. And then when we established the State of Israel, it continued from all of our neighboring countries. And we knew the fight and we knew the flight. And here we are today. It's 2018. And the ADL tells us unequivocally, we have empirical data, 
that anti-Semitism in the last 18 months has had a significant rise, significant. We know that there is a horrible terror attack focused on Jews in Pittsburgh three weeks ago. We know that there have been issues of anti-Semitism that have been brought to the surface in our country in the last six months and even before like it happened in Charlottesville. And our ears are tuned towards it. We even know of some local events that have happened on websites and on streets in our communities, like in Haworth and Demarest and Northern Valley High School and in Pascack High School. There are events that have happened and are happening that have raised our awareness and created us to get to that familiar crouch, that posture we all know of preparing for anti-Semitism. And in many ways, it's like we've been trained by Dick Van Dyke. It's hot, there's fire, stop, drop, and roll. The only problem is, it's hot and it burns, but I propose it's not fire. It's not fire, and therefore, we should not stop, drop, and roll. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything. It doesn't mean that we should be cavalier about what's going on. Let me be abundantly clear. But what it does mean is that we don't take the familiar posture just because we know it, just because it's a reflex for us, just because we can get there very quickly. I want to tell you about a handful of experiences that, to me, underscore this concept of why it's so different today than it has been in years past. Last week, I guess maybe a little bit more, I was in Germany for the week, in Berlin. My first time in Berlin, I was an invited guest of the German government. I, along with 12 other rabbis, were invited for the 80th commemoration of Kristallnacht, the pogrom that was the night of broken glass. That really was the foreshadowing of what would be the fate of Jews in Eastern Europe. On that night, over 107 people were murdered and Thousands were injured and hundreds were rounded up and brought to Dachau and to serve hard labor in a concentration camp. In 1938, it was the Gestapo and Gables and others that organized this pogrom that happened on a moment's notice, and it didn't only happen in Berlin, it happened in Hamburg, and it happened in Frankfurt, and it happened in Munich, and it happened in Dresden, and it happened in Wiesbaden, and it happened throughout Germany, where synagogues were burned, 400 synagogues were burned on that day. 400 synagogues were burned to the ground. Jewish shops were destroyed. And all of this happened by the citizenry, but it also happened with the help and assistance and protection of the Gestapo and the German police. And in fact, the Jews had to pay for all their own reparations. And it was the police that protected those that were the violent aggressors. It was the police and the administration that found the Jews in the wrong for all that had happened. Now I want you to fast forward 80 years, which sounds like a long time, but in the history of humanity, it is a second, literally a second in the history of humanity. And I'm in Berlin, and I'm in a high school with 200 kids in the town of Dresden. And these kids are all high schoolers, and one gets up and says to us, very articulate, impressive 12th grade student, Rabbi, he actually said rabbis, rabbis, 
said his name, I want you to know I feel no guilt for what happened during the Holocaust. No guilt, because I wasn't there and I had nothing to do with it. But I am embarrassed and ashamed of what my ancestors did to another people, to your people. And I ask for your forgiveness. It's a horrible thing that they did. And they left us, meaning the Germans, the worst inheritance ever known. I didn't know how to respond. In my life, I've never heard that level of responsibility in any world I've lived in. Not in my professional world, not in my personal world, not in a communal world, and definitely not on the state side. And this became a mantra throughout our visit. Everywhere we went, from elected officials to young people to people on the street, they saw us and they were embarrassed at the ancestry that they inherited and the legacy they inherited, and they sought forgiveness from us for something they never did. Now, November 9th, which was Kristallnacht in Berlin, is also a historic day in Berlin. They call it the Day of Fate in Berlin. And the reason why is it was the end of World War I, and it was the day that the Berlin Wall fell. So those three events, Kristallnacht, World War I, and the day the Berlin Wall fell, pretty big days for a Berliner. They call it the Day of Fate. And what happens on that day is at lunchtime at 12 o'clock noon, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, everyone stops and they all march in a silent march that takes about a mile, starting from what was the Gestapo headquarters, where the Berlin Wall was once located, is now a museum called the Topography of Terror, and they march to the Holocaust Memorial, which is in the center of Berlin, and it's done silently. And thousands upon thousands of Germans do it together. There are a handful of yarmulkes out there, and in Germany, a lot of people wear yarmulkes who aren't Jewish because they want to say, we associate with the Jews, we acknowledge the connection of the Jews. And it, the irony wasn't lost on me that during that entire march, there were police on foot, on horseback, and on motorcycle that were escorting us and protecting us through this entire process. So 80 years ago, there were police who were complicit in these crimes against Jews, and now 80 years later, it's the same police and the government that are marching with us and protecting us along the way. And there we get to the monument, which is not lost on me, is less than the distance between me and that back door of where Hitler's bunker was during World War II. And there, for the entire day, they read every single name, because the Germans had records on every single one of these, of 50,596, so 5,596, whatever you get the number I'm going for, whatever that is, they read every single name of Jews from Berlin who were killed during World War II. And different people from the community just come up to the microphone and they just read the names. It's in one book. They just read it all day and they have a tent set up in case it rains so that they keep doing it. And after the moment of memory, everyone goes back to work, does their thing, but everyone in the community does it. Now think about that paradigm shift, 180 degrees. And those words by that high school student, they were modeled by elected officials who met with us, they were modeled by common folk that met with us. That was the sentiment of people. And it doesn't mean that there's no anti-Semitism in Germany. There's anti-Semitism everywhere. But the overwhelming majority of Germans had the sentiment of what was expressed to us. And that is not your body on fire. It might burn when there's a moment of neo-Nazism. It might burn 
but it's not something that requires us to stop, drop, and roll. It requires something else, but it doesn't require us to stop, drop, and roll. Pittsburgh, three weeks ago, our worst nightmares. We all get it. It was horrible. And it was all based on a madman who had access to too many guns and came and did an unthinkable thing because of a synagogue's commitment to being open to the stranger and having an immigration Shabbat sponsored by Hayas the week before. It was indeed horrible. There's nothing I can say that can ever justify this tragedy and trauma that will forever go down in history and for will ever serve as a benchmark of one of the worst and darkest days for the Jewish people in America. But the response, oh my God. I don't think any of us could have predicted the response that happened. There have been hundreds of thousands of people who have gone to Pittsburgh to pray with the Jewish people. Hindus and Muslims and Sikhs and Catholics and Baptists and Lutherans and Methodists and atheists who said, we are here with you. We are praying with you. This crime is against all of us. Elected officials, including the President of the United States, whether he was wanted or not, unequivocally condemned it and was there to show his respect and honor for those who were killed. The entire protection alliances of the FBI, the ATF, the police force, and so on, swarmed upon Pittsburgh and then swarmed on the vulnerabilities of every other Jewish institution across the country and said, what can we do to help? What can we do to ratchet up so that this doesn't happen anywhere else? In this very synagogue, Governor Murphy reached out and said, there's nowhere else I want to be on Shabbat but in a shul. And Attorney General Gabir Grewal from New Jersey, who's a Bergenite, came and said, there's nowhere else I want to be but in shul. Now that is nothing like the pogroms that used to happen 50, 70, 100 years ago in Jewish communities, where people would come into shuls and rip up the Torah and disgrace people. There were no elected officials coming and standing by our side. There were no police standing at the door and protecting us because they felt it was their civic responsibility. There was nothing like they had in Toronto, which was called a love circle where people from all faiths stood outside the doors of synagogues across Toronto and held hands in love throughout services so that no bad people who didn't have love would go in? That's never happened before in our entire 3,500-year-old history. And the problem is that when we hear a shooter comes into a synagogue, we take the posture. Fight and flight. Anti-Semitism, they're coming to kill us. And it's true. It does have inklings of that. The burning sensation feels the same as if our arm were on fire. But it is a burning sensation. But our arm isn't on fire. And if it's not on fire, do we really need to stop, to drop, and to roll? Linda Sarsour. Some of you might know that name, some of you might not. Palestinian woman, lives in New York. She is chairing and leading the Women's March, the last one to happen, and the one that's gonna happen this January on Martin Luther King weekend in Washington. Linda Sarsour is neatly aligned on many, many liberal issues with many liberal Jews. 
things that matter to liberal Jews about social imperatives in our community fit neatly into the agenda of Linda Sarsour for many things. One big problem, well, actually two. One, Linda Sarsour has a strong admiration that she will not distance herself from when it comes to Louis Farrakhan, who just a couple weeks ago called Jews termites. He's a rabid anti-Semitic person. It's pretty undeniable on all fronts. Bad guy. And she won't distance herself from him. She won't say what he says is wrong and bad. She embraces him wholeheartedly. That's problem number one. Problem number two, Linda Sarsour said, unequivocally, that in order to be a feminist, you must be an anti-Zionist. She actually said that. There's no way for you to be a feminist and a Zionist together, which is ludicrous, which caused the birth of some great organizations. One in particular is called Zioness, whose leader is gonna come and speak to us on December 8th, Amantha Berman, saying these two things are not mutually exclusive, they are mutually inclusive, of course you can be. Now do you remember about 16 months ago when this anti-Semitism tick started and there was desecration of a cemetery in St. Louis followed by a cemetery in Colorado? Linda Sarsour spearheaded an effort that collected over $100,000 to repair these cemeteries on behalf of the Jewish community. But meanwhile, she's rabidly anti-Zionist against the whole state of Israel, buddies up with Louis Farrakhan, but is where we stand on many liberal Jewish issues and other issues of equality, helping us financially and with her voice to help repair these cemeteries. How do you solve a problem like Linda Sarsour? It's a new phenomenon we have never had in our 3,500-year history. I challenge any of you to give me a case of Linda Sarsour before Linda Sarsour. We've never had it before. And people are treating her one of two ways. She's a rabid anti-Semite, keep her away. Or ignore those pieces, she's good for the Jews, let's bring her close. And it's a whole new phenomenon. It's not either or, it's something in the middle. Now, a lot of people have been asking the question, what's the difference between an anti-Semite and an anti-Zionist? And it's a question that stymied me quite a few times. So I'm gonna give you an answer today that is not my answer. It's an answer by my teacher and my rabbi when it comes to things related to Israel, Yossi Klein Halevi, who was recently asked just a couple days ago, should we treat a Zionist any differently than we treat a racist? Which of course would cause someone like Yossi Klein Halevi to erupt but he didn't, he's measured and wise. And he had this brilliant response. And he said to this person, that question puts you in bad company. He said, anti-Semitism has always been the hatred of the era-based enemy. Meaning that the Jew is the civil, it's the symbol of any given civilization's most loathsome values. I wanna repeat that. That's what anti-Semitism is. The Jew is the symbol of any given civilization's most loathsome values. So for Christianity, the Jew is the Christ killer. For communism, the Jew is the capitalist. For Nazism, the Jew is the race polluter. And today, in this civilization, there is nothing more loathsome than racism, than colonialism, and then apartheid. And what is the Jewish state? 
Out of 193 nations in the United Nations, the Jewish state is a colonialist state. It's an apartheid state. It's a racist state. And when you say those things, you fall neatly, not into the anti-Zionist approach, but into the anti-Semitic approach. If your argument is that the Palestinians deserve a state and equality to live alongside with the Jewish people, you're not an anti-Zionist. You're a passionate justice pursuer. And there's nothing anti-Zionistic in that statement. But to say that the Jews are an apartheid state or Israel's an apartheid state and looking for that level of separation is to take what you call anti-Zionism and take off its mask and call it what it really is, which is anti-Semitism. We have one more issue that I want to bring up that has caused all of us to get into that same posture that we know. It's called BDS, Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions. And BDS is incubated on college campuses today. And nary a Shabbat goes by that someone doesn't stop me and say, Rabbi, Rabbi, my child is at blank university. And the BDS is so rampant, Rabbi, you don't know what's going on. It's going to take over our world. It's 1937 all over again, Rabbi. Be careful, Rabbi. These poor kids, they're on the front lines of attacks on Jews in Israel. Two things to keep in mind. There are over 4,200 degree-granting, four-year degree-granting universities in the United States, 4,200. And to date, on this date, in November 2018, zero, zero of those 4,200-plus universities have divested from the state of Israel because of BDS. They haven't divested at all. Zero. They are batting zero. Not one. Not one. That's number one. You should be happy about that, not sad about that. Here's the second thing that's really worth noting. BDS, Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions. Imagine we had the ability to call a seance, and we call in the seance Theodore Herzl, and Yitzhak Rabin, and David Ben-Gurion, and Shimon Peres, and Golda Meir. And we say to them, Leaders and founders of the state of Israel, we have a problem. What's the problem that you wake us from our slumber? And they say, the problem is, you see, we have our own sovereignty. We're considered to be one of the strongest economies in the entire world. We have one of the strongest defenses in the entire world. Our GDP is on an incredible trajectory. Things are good. We're living overall in a safe way. And now the Palestinians, who we have total control and autonomy over, what about the Egyptians? Oh, we have peace with them. What about the Jordanians? We have peace with them. What about the Syrians? Oh, they were decimated by their own people within the Islamic world. What about Lebanon? They're fighting an internal war with Hezbollah right now. What about Saudi Arabia? We're actually making a lot of strides in peace with Saudi Arabia. And the founders in the seance, their eyes are bulging out from their head. And we say to them, on college campuses today, there are kids who are trying to take boycott, divestment, and sanctions as a nonviolent approach to leverage Israel to release their authority in the West Bank and Judea and Samaria. And Shimon Peres and David Ben-Gurion and Golda Meir and Theodore Herzl and Yitzhak Rabin are going to say, you've got people protesting in a nonviolent, peaceful way about something they want to change in the state of Israel that we only dreamt of for the last 70 years as we were bombarded with rockets and bullets and bombers. And now they're trying to attack us in a violent way and you're claiming it's the same as these bombings with zero universities that have fallen as a victim to BDS? Wake us up for something important. 
It's a perspective we haven't bothered to think about. Why? I argue because we continually fall into a position of fight or flight, and we're not looking at the real problem and the real context that we are surrounded in now. So how do we start to fix it? Well, I'll be honest with you. It's a work in progress. I'm thinking about it because it's just as new to me as it is to all of you. But let me tell you a couple of things. One, I don't think ethnocentricity is our friend in this process. What do I mean? I've had people come into my office and say, hey, Rabbi, what's happening in Haworth right now? What's happening in Closter? What's happening in the schools? It is reason for alarm. You better get in front of us. The sky is falling, Rabbi. And it's not one person. It's many people. And I say, look, the school is saying they're doing education. They're bringing the speaker from the Shoah. They're going to have the ADL. And most people say to me, it's not enough, Rabbi. It's not enough. To which I say back to them lovingly, if there were acts against the Indian American community because of the recent celebration of Diwali, or there were acts against the African American community using words that were repulsive or images that were disgusting, haunting us back to a time that was an ugly era in America, would we demand the exact same reaction we're demanding for the Jewish people? If the answer is yes, you're on the right path. You're on the right path. But if the answer is no, ask yourself why it isn't. And ask yourself why we are being ethnocentric in this process of saying we are more persecuted than the other. That's question number one for us to consider. Question number two for us to consider is, how do we take a stance that isn't this and isn't this, but a new stance, a new posture, a new understanding to what is a new form of anti-Semitism that shows support of the community, support of, support of elected officials, support of the protected forces that look after us, but at the same time is not cavalier to the threats that are serious and that are sprouting in big time in our country today. And I am not naive to the fact that there is a lot of weeds growing throughout our country because of a lot of fertile ground that's been created that has brought some of this evil about. But I think it's time for us to create a new posture. It's not stop, drop, and roll. Maybe it's apply the ointment. I don't know. I'm going to work on it with you. But it needs to be considered. And the problem is that the Jewish people were so historical by nature that we love to go into the places that are comfortable. And the Jewish people embrace change about as well as I embrace a new diet. I'm not supposed to laugh that hard at that one. It's a hard thing for us to do. Because we know what it is to go to the comfortable place. We know what it is to go to the common place. And new is hard. But ladies and gentlemen, the empirical data shows us this is a new phenomenon. And we can't deny it. And we've got to look at it through a critical lens, through a thoughtful lens. And stop, drop, and roll is exactly what we should do if we're on fire. My argument is it's burning, but we're not on fire. And together, we can think of what that new posture is going to look like. It won't be devised by tomorrow morning, not even by Thanksgiving. But this is a moment in our history that is different from the past, and it's our responsibility to look at it thoughtfully. Because let me tell you what, we got a lot to leave to our kids. Germany proved that. Germany proved to our children that they will inherit our choices today, and look at what they've inherited and the shame that they have for inheriting it. 
how we respond is going to matter to the future of the Jewish people. In no way am I advocating for us to be cavalier. We should not be cavalier. It's nothing that we should be flippant about. These are serious worries. But we shouldn't take the same posture we've always taken. It calls for something new and for something different. And together, we'll figure that out so that we ensure that our kids inherit the very best of us because we can't afford another generation that doesn't.